Let's look to the Lord in prayer again. Our Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask that you would teach our hearts to fear you, to worship you. And Father, we pray that we might behold your Son in all of your glory this morning, that our fears might be relieved. We ask that your grace would appear to comfort our souls, to speak truth to our minds for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So I have a question for you this morning. Do any of you have any recurring dreams? Well, I have a recurring dream. Uh, It's really more of a nightmare. And it's stepping up to this pulpit and then having nothing to say, forgetting everything that I've studied or written all week long, and nothing comes out of my mouth. And then James has to step up to the pulpit and taps me on the shoulder and says, What are you doing here? You don't belong here. Go home. Now, hopefully that's not a prophetic dream, and that won't happen this morning. But all of us can probably relate that there's some fear in our life that makes us anxious. And six times in this passage, Jesus uses this word anxiety. And three times in this passage, he actually compassionately commands us to not be anxious, to not worry. He knows that worry and fear and anxiety are going to be one of our core struggles throughout our lives. He knows that he's just called his 12 disciples, and many of them are leaving secure jobs. They are leaving uh, secure families, and they are about to follow Jesus for the next three years of their lives. And he knows beyond that, they are going to face all kinds of persecution and all kinds of trials as they follow Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see this occur over and over. We see when Jesus is out on the lake with his disciples and a great storm comes on the lake and his disciples are all petrified in fear. We see this later in Matthew chapter 14 when Peter sees Jesus walking on the water and Peter gets out of the boat and then begins to sink because he puts his eyes on the wind instead of Jesus. And we'll even see anxiety in the life of the disciples in Matthew chapter 16 even when they are simply hungry. Anxiety and fear and worry was something that was common to the disciples, and it's going to be common to us in our daily lives. But Jesus, in this passage, he gives us great, great hope for our anxiety. If you were to go and look at these stories of the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, when they're on the lake and the great storm comes on the lake, and when Jesus calms the storm, peace be still. You know what they said? They said, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But then later, when Peter begins to sink and cries out in fear, Lord, save me, and Jesus reaches out his hand, pulls him up, and puts him in the safety of the boat, Jesus says this, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And listen to how they responded this time. They said, truly, You are the Son of God. 
There was actually a progression there in the life of the disciples that they went from asking, who is this man, the first time that they were afraid on the lake, to the next time of saying, truly you are the Son of God. There is great hope for our anxiety as we learn more and more about our Savior, Jesus, that our fears and our anxiety can be battled against, that it can be fought You know, I'm here to tell you this morning that there's not a magic formula for your anxiety, but there is a powerful Savior who will reach out his hand to you this morning. And the more that we see him through his word, the more that he will comfort our souls. There's three ways in this passage, of course. There's probably more than that, but I put them in three ways for a sermon. There are three ways that Jesus comforts our soul when we struggle with anxiety. This morning, we're going to look at first perspectives. Second, we are going to look at position. And then finally, we will look at priorities in our lives. These are three ways that Jesus gives us to battle anxiety in our life. First, consider perspectives. Jesus names some of the fears that his disciples are struggling with that many of these early followers would have struggled with. What are they? What they will eat, what they will drink. They're going to be worried about their body. And they are worried about their clothing. And then Jesus gives them these two examples. He says, think about the birds and consider the lilies. And this word for think and consider is a really strong word that Jesus is using. He says, I want to reason with your mind. I want to argue with your soul. I want you to think and ponder about these two examples, the lilies and the flowers. First, he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus is presenting his case to their mind and to our minds by pointing at the birds. It's possible that as Jesus was preaching this sermon outdoors, he might have even pointed to the sky of some migrating birds and says, look at these birds. They work hard for their food. They're not lazy. They're not sitting around in their nest with their beaks wide open, waiting for worms to fall from the sky in their mouth. They are out scouring and looking for food. But understand this, they can't grocery shop. They can't store up food for themselves. And as they are out working, they are dependent on my sovereign, gracious hand to provide for their needs. And God will sovereignly do this, that he is involved in even the small details, even feeding the birds. You know, the theological term that we use for this is providence. And what providence means is that God is actively involved in the details of his creation on a daily basis. The best illustration of providence is actually in the Bible. Uh, It's the story of Joseph, Joseph told in Genesis. Remember, his brothers didn't like Joseph, so they put him in a pit. They sold him into slavery, into Egypt. And there in Egypt, through Um, interpreting some dreams, he arose to become the second most powerful man in the Egyptian empire. And then this great famine comes on the land, and his brothers have to come to him, to Egypt, 
to ask for food, and God will use what they intended for evil for good to spare his family from starvation, from famine, and from death. And this is what Genesis 50:20 says, what you intended for evil, God worked out for good. This is the idea of daily providence that God cares about the details of our lives. And he is ordering those details for his glory and for your good. The second example that he gives, he says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Jesus is saying, if you think that I care about something as temporal and as an unimportant as a bird, I even care about the grass and the flowers. You see, they would gather these flowers and this grass and they would put it in their oven to bake their bread and it would be turned into ashes the next day. Jesus is saying that flowers are not productive, they're not enduring. Yet even God cares and adorns the flowers. Let me illustrate it for you this way. So we have two little boys, Graham and Hudson. Graham is four years old and Hudson is two years old. And I realize when they get older, I'll have to stop using them in sermon illustrations. But they're still young enough that I can do that now. One of the the most recent movies that they've watched is Monsters, Inc., when they go to the university. And I don't know what we were thinking as parents allowing them to watch this movie because the whole prerogative is these movies who jump out of closets into little boys' bedrooms and scare them. And based on how loud they scream, it fills up this scare meter, which basically powers their world. So Graham and Hudson have been... Uh, going around trying to scare each other. And not only trying to scare each other, hiding in closet. We were at the, the playground yesterday in Falls Church, and I noticed that Graham was running around trying to scare all the children on the playground as well. <laughs> so if your kids are in Sunday school with my son this morning, I apologize if they walk away being scared this morning because my son is yelling at them this morning. But in addition to scaring each other, they are also scared themselves. And like all little children, they are now scared of little monsters, or not not little, but monsters in their closet. And what do all little children want at night when they are scared of monsters in the closet? They want their parents, they want their mom or their dad to come in and comfort them. Why? Because they believe that their father or mother is strong enough and loves them enough to protect them. Now, we don't do everything right in our parenting, but this is one of the things that I think we're getting right. When I come into the room at night to comfort them if they're scared, I could point out to them that it's unreasonable to think that monsters exist. I could tell them that they're just being foolish and silly and that the threats are not real, but that doesn't really help. I can also come in and tell them, you know what? You're boys. You're men. You just need to be strong and courageous like your dad. And that might last for like five minutes until they scream out again. But this is what we've been doing with our kids. We go into the room with them and we sit with them. 
And then we start talking about our Heavenly Father. And we play this game about how big is God. And so our kids will try to one-up each other. Is God bigger than our house? And we say, yes, he's bigger than our house. Is he bigger than the tree? Yeah, he's bigger than the trees. Is he bigger than the mountains? You bet. He's bigger than the mountains. And then we also talk about God's love. We've read this children's book that talks about a father loving a son all the way to the moon and back. So then they start playing this game as well of, I love you all the way to the end of the street and back, and God loves us all the way to the end of the street and back, and God loves us all the way to the moon and all the way back. And as we talk about how big God is, how strong he is, and how much he loves us, they understand that God is bigger than any of our fears and any of our threats and cares more about us than even the lilies and the grass of the field, and their fears are washed away. Now, what happens as you get older? You realize that the world, it's not as safe as you think it once was. You understand now that your parents can't protect you from all harm and all evil in the world. So what do we do as adults when we are afraid of monsters in our closets? What do we do? Well, I think what Jesus actually tells us to do here, he says, I want you to go outside and consider the lilies and the grass and the birds. You know, theologians call this natural revelation or general revelation. And Romans 1.20 tells us that his invisible attributes, those being God's, are plain to see, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. Basically, one of the ways to overcome our anxiety, one of the ways to fight anxiety is to go out and stare at the mountains of Virginia. And you may think, I'm a quack and I'm making this up, so let me read two verses for you. Psalms 147 declares, He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth, and He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. He hurls down His crystals of ice like crumbs. He makes the wind blow and the waters flow. He numbers the stars and he knows them by name. In Isaiah 40, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arms rule for him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Now that can seem a bit strange. Are you telling me to go out and stare at birds and flowers, and all of a sudden your anxiety is going to be washed away? Well, It will help. And in this way, look, going out and staring at birds and grass and flowers is not going to allow you to understand all the difficult circumstances of your life. But staring at creation will reveal something about the character of God. When our circumstances of life do not make sense, trust in the character of God 
who rules and overrules our daily circumstances. Look, if you were to go stare at the mountains or you go see the Grand Canyon, look, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to feel big. You don't go to the Grand Canyon and say, wow, I dug that. You know, I'm feeling kind of good about myself. You go to the Grand Canyon to know how small you are and how great God is. And this is the first principle that we learn here. Jesus doesn't first tell us to behave, but he tells us to behold his creative, redemptive glory and power and love present in the creation. So that's the first way, the first tool that he gives us to battle anxiety in this passage. The second tool that he gives us is our position. Look at the end of verse 31. And he diagnoses the core cause of anxiety in our life. What does he say? He says, you disciples, oh you of little faith. He diagnoses their core cause. Look, James in previous sermons has done a great job of explaining that anxiety is going to be affected by our genetics. It's going to be affected by our circumstances in life but it is also going to be affected spiritually. And how it is affected spiritually is that when we have a failure to trust in God's goodness and power and providence, we are anxious. Underneath anxiety is really actually an idol of control, of believing that we know how our life ought to go more than the sovereign creator of the universe. And he tells us not to be anxious because our position, our position as we relate to God is our heavenly Father. We are to consider our position towards our heavenly Father that we are adopted, that we are loved, and that he treats us and withholds nothing from us that he would withhold from Jesus himself. He tells us, that we must increase our faith. Now look, there's two types of faith in the Bible. There's justifying faith. Justifying faith is that moment in a believer's life where he or she, aware of his own sin, repents of it and places his or her faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and is moved from death to life. It's a one-time event in our life where faith is justifying us before a holy God. And an illustration that's really helpful in thinking about justifying grace is this, is imagine yourself falling off of a cliff. And as you're falling off of a cliff, you look up and notice one root that's extending from the dirt. And you only have 5% faith that that root will actually hold you. But it's enough, and you reach out and you take hold of the root, and it is secure, and you are safe. It's an important thing to remember about justifying faith. It is not the degree. It is not the quantity. It is not the quality of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. So remember that we can come to God and say, I believe, help my unbelief, that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. The second type of faith that the scriptures talk about is sanctifying faith. And this is the idea of that as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, 
we are enabled to trust our daily lives to his sovereign care on an ongoing basis. And that's the idea that Jesus has in this passage when he's talking about faith. It means looking at the promises that God has made me and you in Scripture and dwelling on them, and our faith grows in in us over time. Now, how does God do this? Let me give you this other illustration. So we live in Falls Church. We've got a decent-sized yard, so I typically enjoy working outside. And my lawn, I will feed it by fertilizing it. I will water it by turning on the sprinkler, and I will mow it, and I will take care of it. And what Jesus is saying here is, if I'll take care of my lawn, my creation, how much more will I take care of my children? It's the same way for me. I'll feed and water and take care of my lawn, but how much more am I going to make sure that my children are fed, that if they're thirsty, they have something to drink? that they have clothes to wear, that they are protected from harm. How much more am I going to take care of my children than my lawn? And we are to be reminded of our position that we are adoptive children of God. Another thing that we need to remember about our position is that we are the beloved child. We are not the parent. Think about the difference in knowledge between a 4-year-old and a 40-year-old. Hopefully, there's greater knowledge and wisdom by this point in your life. Now, think about the distance between a finite human being and an infinite God who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, who is all-loving, and there is an incredible gap between our limited knowledge and the knowledge of a sovereign creator. And anxiety comes... When we assume that we know more and know how our life ought to go and be than a sovereign, infinite God who loves us. Think about this. Our anxiety is proportional to our pride, thinking that we know better than God what we need and when we need it. This is why Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. He is telling us that anxiety is the concern about the potential, not the actual. That the essence of anxiety is the will to control the uncontrollable. One author put it this way, worry is sin because it denies the wisdom of God. It says he doesn't know what he's doing. It denies the love of God. It says he does not care. And it denies the power of God. It says that he isn't able to deliver me from whatever is causing me to worry. Okay, think about that. Worry, in a sense, is practical atheism. And worry and worship do not exist in the same heart. Something to think about. So in our first consideration, we looked at reminding ourselves of God's attributes by looking at creation. How do we remind ourselves about our position? Well, God has given us special revelation, or what we would call Scripture. And in Scripture, it reveals to us how much our Heavenly Father loves us. 
We, he knows that we are going to leak grace on a daily basis. So he is going to give us grace on a daily basis. And he has given us the word. And he has given sacraments. And he has given prayer to fill our souls with an assurance of his love. And what do we know about our Savior through this special revelation? We know that we will be clothed. Why? Because his garments were lost on a wager at the foot of a cross. We know that we will never be eternally thirsty because on the cross, Christ said, I thirst. And we know that we will never ever lose our lives or our bodies for eternity because he lost his life and his body on the cross. We are secure because he was insecure in that moment. He went through hell so that we would not have to go through hell. And the more that we realize that we are adopted, that we are loved by looking at the story, by looking at the gospel, by seeing Jesus through the means appointed of his words, the more it melts us. And this is what Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also graciously give him all things? You know what he's saying right there? This is what he is telling us in this passage. He says, look, life is going to be difficult sometimes. Circumstances are going to be hard. We live in a fallen world where we may not understand why things happen the way that they do. But here's one thing that I want you to know. If you will stare at the cross, if you will look on the hill of Calvary, you will not conclude that I do not love you. Do you know why? Because I died for you. And greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for another. So we may not understand why certain things happen to us in life, but we know it's not because he does not love us. And Paul argues with us, if he will not only lay down his life for your eternal salvation, will he not also care about your daily needs? Don't let Satan use anxiety and the fiery darts to keep you from the Heavenly Father. When we are afraid, run to Him, not from Him. He will meet your needs physically because He has already met your greatest need. Your greatest need is sin, or your greatest need is a Savior because of your greatest problem is sin. He'll take care of you. And the third and and final weapon that Jesus gives us in this passage is he changes our priorities. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We are to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know, the root word for anxiety means to be distracted, to be pulled in two different directions. And that's why this is placed here in the Sermon on the Mount after James preached a sermon on about having our treasure in two different places. You cannot be double-minded or you'll be pulled in two different directions, pulled apart, and you will be anxious. Anxious means to be pulled in two different directions. Our hopes pull us in one direction and our fears pull us in another. The more that we pursue God and His glory and treasure Christ above everything else, the more 
faith, the less anxiety we will have in our lives. Because God's greatest desire is to give you his greatest gift. And you know what it is? It's himself. The greatest thing that God can give you is himself. And fear is actually loneliness for God. And so if we pursue God above everything else in our life, we'll never ever be disappointed because God is always glad to give us himself. Most of you know that I grew up in the mountains of East Tennessee. I grew up on top of a mountain. We did not have central heat or air. And so it was very cold in the winters and it was very hot in the summers. And so during the winter, we had to chop wood, cut firewood, and we had one wood-burning stove at one end of our house. And of course, my bedroom was at the far opposite end of the house. And so at night, we would bury ourselves in layers and layers of quilts to stay warm. And you know it's cold in your house when you're breathing and you can see your breath. Uh, while you're sleeping at night. But the first thing that we would do, of course, when we woke up, is we would run to the other end of the house to be near the fire to warm us. Or if we were outside, that was the first place that we wanted to come to thaw out. We wanted to eat there. We wanted to sleep in front of the fire. We wanted to stay there because that's where we were warm. Okay, Christian, hear this. Jesus, in this passage, he's talking to Christians if you struggle with anxiety, it's okay. You're in his family. You're an adopted son or daughter of the king. And he tells us that if we will be near him, we are in his household already. And if we will be near him, he will thaw our anxiety. He will melt our fears by the warmth of his presence. So we are to seek first the kingdom of God and to be near him. And then he tells us that we are to seek after righteousness. And again, he's not talking about our imputed legal righteousness. He's talking about imparted righteousness. That over the course of time, Christian, understand this. He is going to grow faith in your heart. And he is going to wipe away our anxiety and our worry. You know, it's said that the Christian life is not measured in in inches, but in miles. Someone else said growth in grace is not a microwave, it's a crock pot. And the Apostle Paul said that life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. The more that we pursue his kingdom, the more that we pursue his righteousness, he is faithful to finish what he began in us. So Christian, understand this. Place yourself in the presence of God so that you can be warmed by his love. Let me close with this illustration. Many of you have probably read the book Prince Caspian by C.S. Lewis. And there's a little girl in this story by the name of Lucy. And she sees Aslan, the lion, who is the Christ figure. And she sees him for the first time in many years. And he's changed since her last encounter. And the size of Aslan surprises her. And she tells him as much. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger Well, that's because you are older, little one, answered the lion. Not because you are, asked Lucy. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And so it is with Christ. The longer we live in him, the greater he becomes in us. He doesn't change, but we do see more and more of him, including his character, his providence, his love, his power, his purity, and we will worship
So I don't want you to walk away from here feeling shame or guilt about your anxiety that you've got to do more. But I want to encourage you, Christian, you are free to struggle. And there are great resources in the gospel to wash away our fears. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at your word, that as we are confronted with how much you love us, we pray that you would sustain us, that you would pour out your grace into our hearts and our minds, that you would argue with us, convincing of us of our adoption and our position in Christ, change our perspective so that we can see who you are and how much you care. And Lord, let us follow you with the priorities of our life so that we might be near you all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.